We're going to be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, beginning with verse 11. Hebrews 6, 11 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather with the saints. Lord, we went through several weeks where we couldn't do that, and Lord, it just refreshes my soul to be able to do that, and so I thank you for that. Lord, I want to just ask you to bless those that are here with us today, bless those that are joining us online, and Lord, do a miraculous work in us, uh, Lord, that we can't do ourselves to make us attentive to your word. Lord, help us to hear. Lord, remove any obstacle to our hearing. Lord, give us hearing ears. And Lord, let us take your word and apply it to ourselves and be changed and transformed um, by the gospel of Jesus Christ once again, Lord. We thank you for that. Lord, I ask um, once again that you would come and you would um, just guard every word that comes out of my mouth, every thought of my heart, Lord, and and allow me, Lord God, to, to serve you faithfully by preaching accurately and boldly the word of the Lord. And um, God, that you would receive all glory and all fruit that is produced from this preaching. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Trace, is it your birthday today? Happy birthday, man. I met that super tall guy that I now look up to when he was about six years old. So it kind of blows my mind that I'm staring into his eyes now like this. So anyway, glad glad you got to celebrate your birthday with us, Trace. Happy birthday. Um, hey, we got a couple of prayer requests online after Paul began praying. So just... Uh, uh, remember these. Uh, Gene Fleener is in is in the hospital right now, and we need to uh, keep him in in prayer. And so uh, we'll do that at the end of the service together when we uh, when we take communion. But um, let's just remember to to keep Gene and Nita in our prayers. Um, uh, so uh, Gene and Nita, I think you're watching right now. We're thinking about you. So um, just know that. So last week I started a series. Um, I, I, we, I mentioned that we tried to stay away from series preaching, which is kind of our thing around here, but we kind of stayed away from it during the seven or eight weeks that we were live streaming only. And um, so I wanted to get back to that so that we could be a little bit more rigorous, a little bit more um, kind of defined in what we were trying to communicate. And um, it, it was kind of a, a idea, something I'd never done before. Usually we'll just go through a book of the Bible or something, which is our preferred method. But um, I wanted to take concepts, many of which you have heard or heard about, and really try to set them side by side and help you to understand them a little bit better. So last week we began by discussing um, justification and sanctification, and this week I want to talk to you about assumption and assurance. And this, in this particular case, uh, there, is, there are two concepts, that one of which I believe is exceedingly better than the other. So we're making a, a kind of a versus comparison here. And 
when I talk about assurance, uh, the way I kind of got started thinking about assurance is, is I mention this all the time. You guys know I like to read really old books uh, from, from Christians many centuries ago, uh, usually the 16th through the 19th century. I find a lot of wisdom in those. And when you read them, you'll notice that writers often discuss this concept, this idea of assurance. And their words uh, in these books, they, they concern how believers can get assurance, how believers can be assured, and, and why believers and why the unsanctified don't have assurance. And they put assurance forth as a principal thing, something that, that should demand our attention, something that should be desired, something that should be pursued, something that should be treasured once it is attained. And when I began to see this, consistently in old books, I had a question, and maybe you have the same question this morning. What the heck do I mean when I say assurance? Well, assurance, and and pay careful attention to this definition, assurance of salvation, assurance of our faith, is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit allowing a disciple of Jesus Christ to know with confidence that they are justified. And, and that they have actually benefited from the gospel of Jesus Christ that they believe. It's an internal affirmation. It's something that happens inside of the, what the scriptures teach about Christ's saving work in individual believer. Paul said this to Timothy. He said, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. When he says, I know, when he says, I'm convinced, this is a textbook statement. This is the language of assurance. It's something that happened inside of him that, that he became so fully convinced. He wasn't wavering. Am I in? Am I out? Um, will God actually receive me when I die? He, none of that. He, he knew. He was convinced. But if assurance is that important, here's another question. Whatever happened to it? Why did we stop talking about it? Why, would, why did pastors and authors talk about it, uh, you know, consistently? At, at, it's always present in books, you know, for 400 years, constant mention. And yet from the time of, the, you know, from, from most of our lifetimes, it's been very rarely talked about in sermons and books and things like that. So from the time of the apostles, I want you to understand kind of how church worked differently than most of our modern experience of church. From the time of the apostles in the first century to the, about the 19th century, so almost 2,000 years, um, with an exception being the kind of oppressive, over-Catholic, abusive, dark ages, the way of salvation in all of that time was meticulously presented in sermons. Very carefully explained. It was presented in sermons. It was thoroughly explained in tracts and books. And along with even instruction in the prime universities. You probably all know this. Even in our country. Yale, Harvard. All of those things were... All of those, those prime universities were originally uh, designed so that people could, could explain and proclaim the gospel to people. And that's what those were for. And they did it, they did it very meticulously. The level of... of uh, understanding, especially after the Reformation, of people about the gospel went up, not down. And when people showed up at church, or even in seminaries, imagine that, people come to seminaries to learn, there was never an assumption that they were saved. No one ever said, you came to Bible college because you are saved. 
No one assumed that. It was very rare that anybody would assume that. And, and that wasn't assumed by the church. It wasn't assumed by the individual who was coming. The, the, the churches would keep the message of salvation before the people in hopes that the Spirit of God would convict them to their need to be saved by Christ. There wasn't a, a kind of a, a quick, rapid-fire succession of this is the gospel. Do you believe it? Okay, let me pray with you. None of that. It was a, it was a, it was a, a, a constant presentation of the truth, and the hope was that people would hear that and they would respond to it. They expected people... And this is something that has radically changed in our culture. They expected people to carefully consider the gospel and never assume that they could just simply make a choice to believe it. But but they were trusting the Holy Spirit to make the gospel, the truth of it, real to them and to help them to understand their need and, and to help them to understand that grace was available to them. They were encouraged, encouraged weekly. Every time they met with their pastor, every time he preached to them, they were encouraged to seek assurance from God and to wait and to search the Bible prayerfully until they did. So enter the middle 1800s. Right before the Civil War, a a man, a revivalist named Charles Finney became wildly popular in our country. Incredibly popular. And what Charles, fin- what Charles Finney did when he came on the scene is he determined that the apostolic process that had been practiced for 1,800 years plus, he determined that that apostolic process was painfully slow. And, and it didn't, it, you know, if you, if you don't mind me using this word, it wasn't real sexy to just tell people something and have them kind of, kind of embrace it. That wasn't, there, there needed a little more pep and zing in the message. And so he began to develop methods to, in order to, to much more quickly mass produce followers of Christ. The goal of the church had always been before to make individual disciples, to concern itself with individuals. But now Finney wanted widespread societal moral reform of the culture at large, not just individual people. So he introduced things that you may think have always been a part of the church, and I'm here to tell you they weren't. He introduced things called the altar call, where the pastor at the end of the service would, would call people forward to, to if they wanted to get right with God. He, he introduced a, a formulated sinner's prayer where he would say, repeat after me, and people would repeat after him. And he would even instruct his musicians to play soft music to get people in an emotional frame of mind um, so that they would be more apt to respond to what he was saying. And these things, as I said, they may seem common to you. You're like, well, yeah, that's what you do in church. And they may even seem normal to you. But I want you to, to, to hone in on this fact. You can look it up yourself. This is easily provable. None of these things were used before, let's say, around 1850. None of them were. This, that was not the method that the church used to present the gospel of Christ. So what Finney did is he enticed people to come to Jesus through the avenue of only their emotions. They, they, he, 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 used the, he played on their emotions to get them to make a decision for Christ instead of what the church had done since the time of the Apostle Paul was to appeal to their mind, appeal to their reason, appeal to a clear explanation of the things that he believed. This has been done since the beginning. And, and, and when Finney made this change, people responded. 
Man, they responded. Thousands of people walked aisles and made decisions during his lifetime. As Henry Ford would later develop assembly lines to make machines, Charles Finney mechanized the process of making Christians. Finney dramatically changed what most people think of as coming to Christ. The things I just described, altar calls, sinners, prayers, emotional music. Most of you, and myself included, either came to Christ in a setting like that, or you have been around it so much it just feels normal. His methods, Charles Finney's methods, are still used in many, if not most, churches. But what I want to do today is kind of be you know, the fly in the ointment and say, has there been a cost to this change? Has there been a a cost to the approach that we now take to convince people of their need for God? See, people once waited. Think about this. People once, as individuals, once waited on God to be convinced that they needed to be born again based on what they heard from the Scriptures. They would hear the Scriptures, they would respond, or they would begin to respond and begin to ask God, okay, God, show me the truth of this. They would never have thought they could just make up their mind in a moment to be accepted by God. See, what happened was, the church always had God in the driver's seat, believing that God was going to call sinners to Himself. Call sinners to new life, to eternal life, to be born again. But what Finney did is he booted God out and put you, me, he put people in the driver's seat. And he said, make a decision, walk an aisle, pray a certain prayer, and guess what? You're in! Easy as that! The process was streamlined. And so now all you were asked to do is sign a good faith contract in order to avoid hell and obtain the favor of God. But what did that cost us? Again, none of this yet may sound as a negative to you, but what did it cost us? Before what was expected, before people came to God, was understanding at least the basic message of the Bible, confessing and repenting from sin, and, and, and those things now are no longer necessary. Don't trouble yourself with the heavy demands of Jesus Christ who says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, you can't be my disciple unless you give everything up. Don't worry about those. Even though the Lord himself commanded us To count the cost before making him Lord. Jesus said that. Jesus would say, people would say, Jesus, I will follow you. I'm giving my life to you. And Jesus said, hold up there just a second. That wasn't a preacher saying that. That was the Son of God. Saying, wait, hold up. Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but just let me put my father in the grave first. He's going to die, I'm sure, in a few years. And Jesus said, hey, I'm sorry, let the dead bury their dead and you follow me. Jesus, you know, I'll come and and serve you. I just want to say goodbye to my family. You know, I I just want to, to remember some of the comforts of home. Jesus said, well, guess what? Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I don't even have some place to lay my head. Are you willing to do that? Now, which is an easier message to make? Is it easier to say, just, you, you know, I've got the music going to make you feel sorry, come down here and, and, and uh, you know, make a deal with Jesus? Or is it easier for me to say, give up everything, die to yourself, lay down your sin, and follow Jesus Christ? Which is different? What's the difference here? So pastors 
Guys in my place used to leave the assurance of someone's salvation to God alone, and they would never pronounce someone saved just because they parroted a prayer. Never. It wouldn't happen. But people seem to like, from the 1850, 1850 on, people seem to like the Finney method better because it, making a decision, we, I just explained it, is a lighter burden than laying down sins you'd rather embrace, than dealing with your own unbelief towards God's sovereign choice and salvation, and, and abandoning our lust for control and letting God call us into His kingdom. So Finneyism, this is what I want you to see about Finneyism, as I'm calling it. Finneyism proves our problem is unbelief. Well, how so? Because God can, now listen to me, I want to take a a big, there may be some pressure on you, you're saying, my gosh, I went to a so-and-so evangelist crusade, the music was playing, the guy invited me, I came forward, gave my life to Jesus, been living for him ever since. Are you saying I'm not saved? Absolutely not am I saying that. God can use altar calls. Thank God. He can use decision prayers. Thank God. He can even use emotional music. And let me tell you something. Full disclosure, He did all of those things the night that I was born again. I responded to an altar call. I repeated a prayer with a preacher. And there was a ton of emotional music playing when I did it. I'm not, I'm not saying God doesn't use those things. But what I want to ask you to do is not defend those things, but ask you a question of your own belief. Do you believe? Do you believe that God has enough power to call sinners to Himself through the simplicity of the preached Word? That's what I'm asking. If we shut down the music... If I, if I use no emotional appeals, if I don't, if I don't guide you through a prayer, can Christ still call you into His kingdom? Absolutely. That's what I'm asking. Now I want to ask you this. Can anyone point to a single instance of anyone using any of Finney's methods in the book of Acts? Let me help you. No, you cannot. The very first gospel sermon ever preached, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has fallen. Peter stands up filled with the Spirit of God and begins to preach a very strong, even accusing message of the Jews. He does not end that, read it yourself, he does not end that sermon by saying, every head bowed, every eye closed. Doesn't say it. But listen to the response of the crowd, Acts 2.37. Now when they heard... This, what Peter had preached. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, Peter may have wanted to make an an emotional altar call. He may have wanted to make an appeal. He never got the chance because the power of God's word ripped through those people and they were demanding to know what they had to do to make peace with God. There was no invitation. The word alone convinced the first hearers they needed Jesus. And so, okay, you got Acts chapter 2. What about the rest of the of the book of Acts? I'm telling you that Peter, Philip, Paul, Barnabas, and Silas preached the word of God with no added production value. They had none of it. 
They, they just preach the word. And, and the only production value, the only, the only power behind their, their presentation was what was provided by the Holy Spirit. And guess what? People responded. Paul preached. Peter preached. And the Holy Spirit himself brought conviction of sin. He brought, he brought convincing of gospel truth. He brought confirming signs and wonders. And ultimately, he brought assurance of salvation. And all the Holy Spirit was then or is now or has ever required His servants to do is proclaim the truth accurately and boldly. That's all He's asked us to do. Some of us have spent years, I've I've talked about this before, how when I was first became a Christian back in 1987, I was 16 years old, and, and the first thing I wanted to do is how to, to the technique for, for bringing someone to Christ. And there were thousands of models out there. But what I learned as I grew older, that if I just let the life of Jesus flow out of me and out of my mouth, guess what? People respond to that. They respond to it. I'm not saying that all of those things were worthless, because they certainly weren't. But I'm saying, if you'll just worry about repeating what God says accurately and boldly, you will not have to worry about people coming to Christ. But what we've done is we've traded God's assurance of faith, God's assurance of salvation, brought about by the power of the preached word. We've traded all of that for gospel assumption. What was once... A completely supernatural thing is now purely transactional. What I mean by that is we we now trust a process, not a person. Certainly not the person of Christ. We now trust a procedure, not a promise or a promiser. We now trust the instructions of a preacher more than the word preached. We assume that of which we have not been assured by God himself. And Jesus himself, during his ministry, warned us of this. He warned us. You remember Matthew 7, verse 21, beginning, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Oh, yeah, I'm good. Back in 1967, I bent my knee. I I, I said exactly what the preacher told me to say. And Jesus is saying, hold up. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, and, and I fear that many of you will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus speaking, will declare to them, I never knew you. What am I saying here? That some of us Some of us in this room, some of us watching on on Facebook, were sold a bill of goods. He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, assumption is any time the narrow way is made wider. Assumption is any time the rocky path is made easier. That's assumption. That's not not the, the, the ground for assurance. That's assumption. Assumption is when you see a mega church preach the, the very lowest common denominator basics of salvation and then tell everyone in the, in the audience of tens of thousands of people, if it sounds good to you, come down right now, be baptized and we'll give you a free t-shirt. And you might think I'm making that up. I'm not. It actually happens. It actually happens. 
But in that transaction, there's no discussion of the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's no conviction of sin. There's no repentance. There's no forsaking worldliness. There's no loving the brotherhood of Christ. There's no submitting to the authority of the church. It's simply a decision to be made. It's like buying a timeshare to heaven. Do you want to be in? Just sign the contract. But assurance, by comparison comes as a result of believing what has been preached. And, and you could say that about the, the, the model I just said. But, but it goes on beyond just what's been preached in a moment of emotion. It, it's also everything else the Bible says. It, you, you have to believe the whole Word of God as the revealed Word of God. And it has to be thoroughly heard and considered and found to be true. And even beyond that, assurance is a gift a gift and it's granted only by the Holy Spirit I can prove it Romans eight sixteen. the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God that is a powerful word that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is actually to go to you and say hey Christ has done a work in you you're mine. You belong to me. You are my child. Man, see, assurance, when I talk about assurance, you might think, well, I have assurance. I can work myself up to a pretty good head of steam. Listen, assurance is not about a positive religious attitude. It's not about what you hope. It's not about what you wish to be true. It's not just wishing on a star. Assurance can never originate within you. It's something that the Holy Spirit alone can give you based on what is written in God's holy book. And that's not to say, I want to be careful here, it's not to say I'm not implying that we will always have full assurance. If you're a Christian, you're convinced you're a Christian, raise your hand if you haven't felt too saved at times in your life. Raise your hand. Amen. Saw a couple of liars out there, but I'll take the... I'll give you forgiveness. I'll grant you absolution. Not to say that we always have full assurance. Sin will still trip us up from time to time, robbing us of our sense of assurance. But see, here's the difference. If you have an assumed salvation, you're just going to walk on, blindly putting your trust in some contract you think you signed with God, even while He is trying so hard to let your conscience burn within you. You'll just ignore it, keep going forward, But what happens when you're truly a believer, that as soon as you lose your sense of assurance, a genuine Christian will cry out for God to renew that assurance and and, and give it as only he can and as he is in the act of repenting and forsaking whatever it is that robbed him of his assurance. Assurance, and that brings a whole new light on it. Assurance is something that is worth, listen to me please, assurance is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for. Well, I thought you said it was a gift from God. Well, sometimes you've got to clear out some stuff for God to, to uh, have, the, have the, the clear path to come in and speak to you. Let me explain what I mean. This is what Peter, how Peter puts it. it, it it's, a, it's, a, it's a fight that we have to do. The Bible encourages us to seek assurance diligently. Peter puts it like this. First, or Second Peter 1.10, he says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. What does that mean? It means work hard. But work hard doing what? Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. 
Don't just walk in and show God your resume of where you prayed and the words you used and the water you were dunked in. You confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these things that he listed in the previous scripture, you will never fall. He's saying confirm it. Don't assume it based on your own faulty standard. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says something very similar. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Review those words. Confirm your calling and election. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. It bothers me that some of you think that you are saved based on an unbiblical standard and a meaningless method. Take the test. Take the test. I'm pleading with you. Some of you say, well, that's just doubt. And and I've been told by every preacher in my life to not give place to doubt. I'm telling you, don't fight off every doubt. It may be originated in a conviction from the Holy Spirit to call you into true eternal life. Don't fight off every doubt. Let them rise. Don't let them torment you. Let them rise. And then you submit them to Christ. You say, Jesus, I'm wrestling here. I'm wrestling with this, with the, the, my sense of security, my sense of assurance. Give them to Jesus. And then ask Him, have the guts to ask Jesus to convict you or to assure you. It's His choice. He can do it. Because sometimes the Bible even talks about our hearts deceiving ourselves. Sometimes we lose assurance just because we're frail. And Jesus wants to assure you. He wants to come in and, and, and assure you of, of your, your place in the kingdom of God. But there are other times when people have been falsely converted that they need convicted and let the, let the Lord deal with what's in them so that they can be born again. And then most of all, all the time, don't ever stop. Open your Bible, search the scripture and see what it has to say to you. So in our text that Paul read this morning, the writer of Hebrews had just warned the people not to trifle with God's saving grace in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 6. And it's followed by an assertion of his confidence in God's work in them. He tells them, hey, I believe better things about you. But then he encourages them. Watch this. He says, kind of like what Peter and Paul said in those verses I read to you earlier. He encourages them. He says, show the same earnestness. That means put your nose to the grindstone in this deal. To have the full assurance of hope until the end. He's saying to seek assurance and don't be half-hearted about it. Make it your principal thing until the very end. Until the very end of your days, ask the Holy Spirit to remind you that Jesus has, has redeemed you and saved you. Now this doesn't mean, please be careful here. I'm not saying, when I talk about doubts and things and letting them rise and bring them to Christ, I'm not saying that you should be fearful of not being saved. You know, if you, if you have joy in the Lord, you don't need to go, well, I'm probably not. It's probably just me. It's probably just deceiving myself. It's not how it works. But what I'm saying isn't to be fearful of not being saved. I'm saying just the opposite. That we should trade our false confidence in our own morality and our own religious ceremonies that we've participated in for the full grace-filled inner peace that only Christ can give. And that's a great trade. It's a fantastic trade. John says this, or Jesus says this in John rather, 
And, and most of you only hear this, this passage at funerals and when you're having a tough time at work and that sort of thing. But I want you to think of peace as peace with God. Peace uh, that you have from God because you've been saved. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Until you seek assurance in Christ alone, you will always struggle with doubts about either being good enough to be received by Christ, and the truth of the matter is none of us are. We're received because of grace, not because of our goodness. But more than that, you'll struggle with doubts about being loved enough. I know who I am. How on earth could Christ love me? But when you allow the Holy Spirit to assure you based on what the Bible says, man, you'll be a rock. You will stand firm. David said, search me and know all of my wicked ways. And they said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. That's what I'm talking about in assurance. Holy Spirit, I'm an open book. Dig in. Go to the darkest hidden corners of my heart. The closets I keep locked up tight from you. Kick them open. Find everything, God. And then after you've exposed everything and removed it, then lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I want you to know the Holy Spirit's working in your heart based on what I'm putting forward this morning, that seeking assurance almost never happens overnight. After everything I said about Finney, I'm not going to say, all right, stand up, every head bowed, every eye closed, who needs assurance, raise your hand, we're going to pray for you so you can get assurance. No, no, there's some work involved. It doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's, it takes time and that's okay. Because here's what you need to know. God never wastes your time or his. He never does. When you're seeking assurance, God is going to be working amazing things in you as you seek. Isn't that a great promise? Our text points out this today. It says it so clearly that the Hebrews, the writer says, should seek full assurance so that they may not be sluggish. So that they can be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's saying, look guys, stay the course. Dig in. Don't, don't give up on finding the assurance of God. Don't, don't be lazy. Don't be sluggish. But imitate Paul and Peter and all those guys who knew who they had believed and, had, and were persuaded, were convinced that he's able to guard it. God works his holiness into us as we seek the gift of, of assured peace from the Holy Spirit based on Holy Scripture. And don't give up until you have confidence from God that you belong to him. He will not ignore you if you ask him to reveal his heart to you. I love this passage in Luke 11. And, and we're asking for something only the Holy Spirit can give. And listen to what Jesus said. He said, what father among you, if his son asks for fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Man, what a promise. What a promise. And lastly, let me point out what I'm not saying. I want to make this, I've kind of alluded to it, I want to make this clear. This is how I'm closing. I want to make this clear. Raising a hand, praying a prayer, walking an aisle, certainly doesn't make you saved. 
But if you did any of those things, and most of you probably did, and it's America the 20 and 21st century, it doesn't mean you're unsaved. That is not what I'm saying. God saves us according to his will and working, and he is very able to use broken things. Amen? And thank God. <laughs> but if, if you think... Because of this, because God can use those things, if you think you've got a legal loophole because you've done any of those things, and yet you're ignoring on a daily basis the conviction of the Holy Spirit, never repenting or forsaking sin, and walking in hatred and unforgiveness, you have no reason to assure yourself of your salvation. And you may even be condemned to hell. So don't play games with that. Don't play games. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what is true and what is false. So throw your religious experience aside and ask God to convict you of sin and convince you of the truth. Don't tell him, listen, this is another thing Finney gave us, don't tell Jesus you receive him. What? That's salvation 101. Do not tell Jesus you receive him. What I would encourage you to do is plead with Jesus to receive you. Hear me? Plead with Jesus to to, uh, receive you and then to assure you that he has, that you are his child. He will hear your heart's cry because he's tender and merciful. he, He is everlasting in his steadfast love. And he wants to make you his own. Are you assured this morning by the Holy Spirit of your true faith and unshakable salvation as he reveals the truth of his word to your innermost being? Or have you, like so many, just assumed that you and God are good because of some hoop a preacher told you to jump through? Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What a great promise. That is assurance. Jesus and the Father coming to make their home with me? That's assurance. The ever-present love of God right there resident with me. That's assurance. So we're going to take communion now. And I want to give you an opportunity to do something, to just... um, Maybe if you would, first of all, just stand up with me. I, I just want to give you the opportunity to just... Uh, I was so tempted to say every head bowed and every eye closed. <laughs> but I do want you to just kind of, in your own way, get alone with God right now. And I want you to think about, for some of you, what is probably a plague of doubts that you've dealt with. And worse... There's been no doubt, there's just been indifference. Yeah, that that thing's been checked off my list for months, for years, for decades. I'm good. Me and God, we're good. And yet, as you've heard these words this morning, you can honestly say, I have never received a full Holy Spirit-given assurance of the work of grace within my heart. If as you're standing there, you can think of of sins where you know you're defying God and you have no intention to lay those things down, trust me, you have no assurance. But if you're willing to say, okay, God, 
I'm kicking the doors open. Let your light come flooding in. Search me, know me, purify me, and then lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I want you to just, before your lips, take the wafer and the juice. I want you to just do some business with God right now. We just do that. I'm not going to rush you. Because our communion here, it represents something. It represents a covenant, a new covenant that we have with God. That He, if we bring <coughs> our sin and our weakness and our flesh to Him, that He will totally forgive us, wash us, cleanse us, make us new. He is not something that we join. That 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 we join. He's something that He joins to us, to Himself rather. He joins us to Himself, not us joining to Him. And He does it. And so search your heart, and the Holy Spirit may want to work in you right now. Take a moment. Some of you may have way more than you can deal with this morning. As I already told you, that's all right. Just don't shelve this away. Don't get back to business as usual when you walk out this door. Because the Holy Spirit is reminding you of stuff right now and, and, and causing you to... Take a second look at things. Just begin to uh, let him do his work. Purify you. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the, night, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, a message like this morning reminds us that we are in and of ourselves broken beyond repair, Lord. God, we can buy all the motivational calendars in the world and read all the self-help books, but Lord, at the end of the day, we, we have to look at you and we have to say like Isaiah did, woe is me, for I am a man I, I am, who is undone, who has unclean lips and lives among a people of unclean lips. And Lord, what we're asking for you to do today is to come and take fire from the altar and touch our lips, Lord God, and make us clean, make us whole, make us new, Lord God, and then come flooding into us, Lord God. Come flooding into us with your assurance, Lord God, of what you have done, that your spirit would bear witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. So, Lord, as we hold this little piece of bread, we we remember that you were broken so that we wouldn't have to be, Lord God. You traded your brokenness for our wholeness, your wounds for our health, And we thank you for that, Lord God. Now I ask by a sovereign work of an almighty God that you would make it real to us. In Jesus' name, let's take the wafer. Lord, also in Isaiah you said, Though your sins be as scarlet, they will soon be white as snow. And yet, Lord, the prerequisite for that promise was that we would come and reason with you, Lord God. 
to come and negotiate with you, not negotiate good works, but to come in full surrender, to raise the white flag, Lord God, and say, okay, enough, enough of my self-defensive mechanisms, enough of my uh, pleading my own innocence, Lord. We, We declare ourselves in accordance with your word to be guilty. And God, as we stand before you guilty, we ask that the only cleansing agent in the entire universe, the blood of Jesus, would cleanse us of all of our sin, would make us holy and would allow us to be regarded as righteous before you, Lord God. So God, as we have asked all morning long, search us, Lord God, and know us, try us, see if there's any wicked way in us, and lead us to the rock that is higher than us, God. You would extend your hands into a receiving position. I just want to read a very simple benediction over you and send you out in the blessing of the Lord. The Bible says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be blessed.